Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast discussing the strange, eclectic, macabre and esoteric, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is Chris Reeve, the creator of a blog called The Gotobed Diaries. This details his discovery of the case files of one Dr. Thomas Gotobed, who appears to have been, or still is, some kind of researcher of the occult. The files themselves vary between reports on paranormal incidents and the good doctor's own thoughts on various theories about the supernatural. Is Dr. Gotobed real? Well, I'll let Chris tell you that. What I can say is that we had a really interesting talk about a broad range of supernatural subjects, from werewolves to poltergeists and monsters such as the Kraken. Enjoy! Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So you have a blog called The Go-To-Bed Diaries, which you describe as uh, a stranger's notes on the occult. Uh, just tell us, well, first tell us a little bit about yourself and then how you came to create the blog. Uh, well, first of all, um, main thing about me is I, I absolutely really love um, a good paranormal story. Um, I've always been a really big fan of kind of um, paranormal stuff. I like um, fictional ghost stories and things like that. But the problem I've had with them is they tend to follow things like character development and their story arcs in the three-act structure. And that's all well and good and everything. But I've always preferred um, the true stories. Um, I always think that there's more kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, terror in the kind of mundaneity of them. So with a fictional ghost story, you'd set them in like um, an old castle or a mansion or a galleon or something like that. Whereas with the, the truer ones, they always take place in somewhere that you'd recognize, like a house, say a terrace house or your mum's house or your office or your school or something like that. And it's the kind of juxtaposition of the supernatural against the kind of everyday. And to me, that's a lot more terrifying than, than what you kind of see in uh, classic fictional ghost stories. Oh, yeah, OK. Probably. And so with that in mind, um, uh, how did you start the, the blog? Well, I'll, tell, I'll give you an example. Um, I'm not sure if you've read it, Ben, but This House is Haunted by Guy Lyon Playfair. Um, you know, I, I haven't read it yet, but I, I got it for Christmas. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I highly, I'm aware highly of the, recommend um, that. I'm aware of the Enfield poltergeist phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. So anyone who's interested in, in the paranormal or psycho research in any way should definitely read this book. It, it is absolutely fantastic. And the way it's kind of presented... Um, I find very interesting because of its the way it's reported in such a way as none of it's kind of sensationalized. It's all um, mm. sort of this is what happened. There's no nothing like oh, and then someone went white with terror and ran out of the room. It's all um, objects moved, and then we recorded it with this and things like that. And I think the kind of the way those events are reported um, gives it much more kind of um, not not terrifying. Not the word I'm looking for more kind of a a creepy edge to it. I read that book when I was 11 and I read, I rented it out from the library and read it in about six hours. And I it kept wow. me awake for about a week, to be honest. It absolutely terrified the hell out of me. <laughs> but yeah, and that, that's the one that kind of uh, sparked my interest in, in this sort of thing. And what I tried to do with the Go to Bed Dies is, is to present weird tales in that sort of style, the style of um, them actually being reports rather than stories told from like the third person point of view. Does that make right, sense? Okay. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, uh, so, yeah, just just tell us about the, the the concept of the of the diaries themselves. 
Well, I kind of uh, have it sort of um, a bit of a framing device at the start. It's um, the conceit is that I moved into a new flat and uh, I found a case that didn't belong to me. So I kind of put it to one side. And then a few weeks later, I went looking into it and uh, it actually belonged to the resident who lived there before me, who was a paranormal investigator. And uh, it's kind of a file containing all his reports and notes on things that he's been investigating over the years, um, including like photos and uh, diagrams and things like that. And I like that because it allows me to kind of um, play around with um, presenting things in such a way that they they could possibly be true. Yeah, which I think is a bit more of a kind of, I mean, I get a lot of people contact me and sort of say, oh, did this actually happen sort of thing? And I originally started off saying, oh, no, who knows sort of thing. But then I thought maybe I can't really carry on with that. It's probably going to come back to bite me on the bum at some point. So now if anyone does ask, I do normally confess that I've, I've made most of it up. <laughs> right, but, okay. Um, no. No, go ahead, sorry. I was, I was going to say that the, the way I kind of um, construct them is um, I like to take elements of um, truth, like um, historical events that are kind of a matter of record and then use them as examples mm. to go into um, the part of the tale that I've kind of invented. So it's sort of mixing fact with fiction, although I'm using fact quite loosely there. So it's kind of um, eyewitness accounts and people's experiences. And yeah, use them as a kind of boosting point or events that have happened at some point in the past. Yeah. So is that kind of, it's a blending of, of the two. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, when we were, before we, when we were arranging the recording, we were talking about it and whether to, whether to kind of, you know, uh, uh, to talk about this and and the nature of the of the diaries themselves, but I, I mean, I think it doesn't really matter. I think I don't. I don't think it matters that there's a a fictional element to the to the mm. cases themselves because they do relate to to things that that have been reported by people in 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 documented cases of the paranormal. So yeah, yeah, I I, I think it I think it works really well. Yeah, I like to consider myself a kind of um, uh, a collector of paranormal as well. I'm, I consider myself really, well, not really, but quite well-read around paranormal subjects. I'm a big fan of the work of Charles Fort and um, Colin Wilson and even uh, the sometimes controversial Harry Price, who's uh, yeah. sort of the, thing, you know, the things he writes about, uh, I find really interesting because he's obviously a, well, a bit of a bit of a charlatan, a bit of a fly-by-night guy, but he seems to know what the people want and he can egg things up to a level where it's just below kind of where you don't, want to believe that it could happen yeah i think he has a really yeah. good way of presenting himself yeah, he's one of the he's one of the old school boys of a yeah uh, psychical research i think i find it interesting too that the society for psychical research wouldn't have him so he had to find the money for his laboratory from uh, the media and things like that that amused me <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean to be fair to harry price i mean i think he helped put places like borley rectory on the map didn't he so yes yeah and even if only uh, um, a small percentage of what did happen there is true i mean that's still something isn't it i mean i'm, I'm sure yeah, he I mean, did probably egg it on a little bit because that was his style <laughs> <laughs> yeah and he, um uh, jeff the mongoose as well that's yes yeah that's something i remember from from a from a kid like that story has mm. always always fascinated me and and i think yeah harry price went he went there didn't he, he went to the isle of man to yes to investigate that so yeah, the talking mongoose, that, that was one that I remember reading about as a child and thinking, I'm not really sure what to make of this, to be honest. It would be great if it was true. But then uh, the way he writes about it, and he seems so convinced it's hardened for that to not rub off on you a little bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I I, I think um, with with something like that, the it's almost the 
the the the working out of what it was of that that is the most fascinating thing I think because it's mm. so it's so weird that it's it's almost impossible to and um and, and it's so bizarre as well it almost lends yeah. it it almost gives it more credence because you know why would why would someone create this this tale if if there wasn't something to it yeah it, it's yeah it's it you wouldn't make it up would you it's it's kind of almost that I mean, like, talking <laughs> mongoose is a strange thing to choose as well <laughs> yeah definitely yeah, going back to one of my favorite authors, actually, is um, Elliot O'Donnell. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He was um, an English writer from the early 19, no, late 19th century. And uh, he was um, a writer of fiction and a, a collector of paranormal tales. But he was very clever in that he would kind of blur the line between the two. And he would never quite tell you which was which. And there'd always be a little bit of fiction would creep into his factual tales. But then always his fictional tales would be based around a part of fact. And so, yeah, he's a, yeah. a really big inspiration for me. He's not really widely well read these days, which I think's sad because he is a, a really, really good uh, weaver of paranormal tales. And he also, yeah, I hadn't heard to... about him. Sorry, no, he's also. I hadn't heard about him to... until recently. Um, yeah, yeah, but I'm um... hoping he's having a bit of a resurgence. To be honest, I really hope he is because he, he's seriously underrated at the moment. Yeah, I'm sure he wrote a book about cults in London or something about which. I, I haven't been able to find, but it sounds, I mean, and, and that, you know, that, that era as well, it, it sounds like a fascinating, mm. yeah. fascinating book to read. Yeah. A lot of his work is out of print at the moment, but I've been getting hold of it slowly by, I think, I can't remember the name of the company, but they are bringing them back sort of one by one. So if you keep looking, I'm sure that that will pop up at some point along with his other stuff. Oh, cool. Excellent. Yeah. And it's, it's his way of, of writing that kind of blending of, of, of fact with fiction. It is one of the ways that I try to do it too. I mean, the first, one of the first stories I wrote was um, called Operation Werewolf. And that's about a yes. possible werewolf sighting in Berlin. And I start that one off by using the um, exact quote that was actually broadcast uh, through Berlin as the Nazis were losing World War II. They wanted to try and uh, G up their local population to resist the Allied advance. And so they quoted from um, uh, a novel called Der, Der Werewolf. But please forgive my pronunciation of german words i'm not too strong on that but that actually sort of ended with the words uh, a single motto remained for us to, to conquer or die and it started with my werewolf to bite the enemy and then he's done and then he's gone and that's a, although it's not specifically about kind of like lycanthropy or anything like that i use that to set up this uh, possible sighting in berlin and i tell that through the tales of um sorry through the diary of an american soldier who was stationed there in 1946 and then um, leap forward into the future and then there'll an interview by uh, Dr. Go to Bed with a woman who lived in Berlin at the time and her kind of violence account and then mingle the two together. So I'm quite confident that that one sort of works kind of well. And that's actually one I've had quite a lot of people contact me and uh, ask me if it was true or not and ask if they can see the diaries of the uh, private from uh, the American forces. That kind of thing. That's what I mean by the blending of, of kind of fact with fiction. I mean, I think it works a little bit better. I've got another one called um, Little Tricks at the Old Angel, or Beneath the Old Angel, sorry. Uh, the Old Angel is a, a pub that's in Nottingham where I currently live, and it's it's got loads of history, this place. It's been there for hundreds, maybe even thousands of years. Uh, it was next to a Saxon settlement that was originally Nottingham, and it's got this really bizarre layout. There's the, the bar underneath. And then above that, there's a, a space called the chapel, which actually was a chapel at one point. And then above that is another level that was a, at one point it was a brothel. So um, workers right. in the lace market in Nottingham could come in, uh, spend their money on drink, then go up to the top floor and uh, 
do whatever they wanted to do with a prostitute and then go down to the uh, the chapel beneath and then get absolved of sins and probably do it all again the next day. Yeah, yeah which I find that uh, quite amusing. And also they have a cave system and underneath Nottingham where I live now, there's um, an entire cave system that seems to run all throughout the city centre. And that's one of the reasons where we have quite a lot of history in Nottingham and a lot of it does go back to... Um, I mean, here is where the English Civil War pretty much kicked off. I'm condensing a lot of history there into to a small thing. But yeah, and it allowed me to use this pub as a, a basis to setting a tale. I mean, I know the landlord quite well. I managed to get a, a quick sort of guided tour of the place. And I must admit that even I knew if I knew I was going to be setting a fictional tale there, but it did creep me out a little bit walking around this this dark place with all this graffiti from years and years ago with rooms that people haven't been into for a long time. Yeah, <laughs> I did find that quite amusing. But that pub, actually, there's um, a story of a, a prostitute that was murdered there in the 18th century. And then a policeman was also uh, murdered there a few years later. And the local story is that they can be seen at certain times of the night, this, that, and the other. And then there's always the tales of um, the old landlords telling the tales of uh, keys going missing and things like that. And they always have a little smile on their face when they say it, as if they don't quite believe it themselves. But I was using that to as the basis to set up a story about a woman who um, begins, she's a psychology student and she wants to hold an experiment into the nature of fear. And as you can imagine, that probably doesn't end too well for her. But then that, that's what I'm saying about blending the the fact of, maybe, that's, that's maybe not fact, but the uh, acknowledged kind of myths and legends behind this pub and then use that as the basis to leap off and make a tale of my own out of that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. I um, I, I really like that 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 post on on your blog. I, I thought it worked really well. Um, it reminded me of. Have you heard of the Philip experiment? Yes. Yeah. So it reminded me a little bit of that because in in that I think they were they were do they were it was like a, a some students at a university uh, and a professor they did an experiment to try and understand. Um, uh, like the, the paranormal phenomenon, but they 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 invent and they invented uh, a character called Philip um, to to kind of to to kind to kind of almost de- debunk the the idea of ghostry yeah. and 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 explain explain how 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 a seance could work in terms of the effect it has on people. But then it turns out that that the the, the entity that they created. Did start interacting with them in unexpected ways. So yeah, it began to take on a life of its own, didn't it? If I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, um, on a on a previous episode, I, I've just done a recording um, prior to this one, and I was talking to well, my guest is, is an author, and and she was helping out at a, at a kind of a ghost a ghost event at a at a, at a castle in mm. up in Northumberland, and she was helping supervise a seance and and. The, the party in that sense were contacted by uh, a character from from a book that she'd written and the, and the, and that character knew her she uses a pseudonym when she writes but, yeah. but the character knew her like her given name so okay <laughs> so things like that yeah yeah it's really really strange mm. um but i mean I, I stuff like that i mean it, it it just makes it even more fascinating in terms of in terms of what this with what this phenomena is and yeah so yeah i mean i i i thought this was a, a really a really great post well and actually i'd forgotten about the philip experiment i suspect that may have subconsciously uh influenced me at some point along the line yeah i do remember reading about that as um 
as, as a kid kind of thing. And I think that now that you've mentioned it, it that probably did creep into my mind at some point. And interesting, oh, okay. you should say that they, they created um, uh, this phenomenon too. That's something I'll, I'll come back to a bit later on about um, subconsciously created uh, things that, that may explain paranormal stuff. But um, the next post I wrote was uh, called um, The Colossus of the Deep, and that was much more factual. Um, these The things I would report in there were actually did occur. I mean, it starts in 1861 with a French steamer known as the Electon which was um, cruising town Tenerife. And that was actually attacked by um, what they thought was a sea monster, but now we would probably recognize as a, a colossal squid. And um, they right. uh, attacked back kind of thing and uh, fought this this massive squid for hours and then managed to sort of spear it and try and drag it on board. But as they put a rope around its body, the weight of the creature kind of split it in half. And so all they managed mm. to drag aboard was the tail and um, the captain sent this back to the French Institute of Sciences, along with his report and uh, the accounts of the crew. And uh, he was mocked by the Institute of Sciences. They were kind of like, oh, there's no such thing as giant squid. How can they possibly exist? You must be crazy. And whatever you've got here is, is something completely different. And that, that amuses me because that's, that's the kind of, um, that's the, again, something else I'll go on to later is, is uh, the science. I, I, don't, I don't want to kind of come across as um, anti-science or anything, but this thing about how it, things that don't exist, therefore there's no point looking into them sort of thing. It's interesting how that kind of um, stance has, has been throughout the years, but then changes as, as obviously as evidence and uh, attitudes do kind of change. But going back to this, um, in 19, 19, was it? 1978, there was a boat called the USS Stein that was sailing from San Diego to South America. And they collided with something in the waters of South America, something very, very big. And that thing knocked their sonar out and the captain wasn't stupid. He knew that you can't really sail around um, without the sonar systems. They took um, themselves to a dry dock and we were looked at by a team of engineers. And um, sonar um, domes have loads of rubber coating on them to stop them corroding and this, that and the other. And when the engineers looked at the sonar dome, they saw these massive gashes in it. that are the kind of things that you would find if, if a squid or an octopus had, had attacked something. But in those gashes as well were, were hooks of this kind that you would find of the suction right. cups inside of squid. Except one thing, these gashes and these hooks were absolutely enormous. They were far too big. They, and when they sent them to a marine biologist who looked at them, they estimated that that creature would be about 50 meters long, which is pretty damn wow. big for a squid, to be honest. And, and though the USS Stein was an actual ship, it's a matter of, of naval record that that did actually happen to that boat. And um, they the US government came out and said, oh, yes, it was a squid attack. But the interesting thing is, is that they took the more fantastical kind of um, idea. You say, yes, this boat was attacked by something that, that's not been seen before. Everyone who was on board the ship uh, said that wasn't true. That couldn't possibly happen. They reckon that they hit a submarine. And I think that's the first case okay. in, in recorded history of the government ever taking the, fight, the more fantastical explanation. <laughs> and everyone else, all the witnesses who were there saying, no, no, that, that can't have possibly been. It's because normally it's kind of like um, you say, oh, um, some interdimensional being came and mutilated my cattle. And the government, oh, no, it was a weather balloon, that kind of thing. Yeah, you don't <laughs> yeah. often see the reverse, do you know what I mean? <laughs> no, no, I mean, I, um, it's, in, terms of, in terms of things that are, um, you know, a, a, a classic, sort of a, a classic story in, in Fortiana, uh, sea monsters seem, seems to be the one where, where there's, there's the most evidence, uh, yeah. physical evidence, yeah. I would say. Um, so yeah, that's amazing. I, I didn't. Uh, I I had read the bit about the um, 
the encounter with the friendship. I hadn't hadn't seen the bit about that that later encounter. That's that's incredible. Yeah, because I sort of I I found um, uh, information about that on Wikipedia, and I thought maybe that's been put there to like just just trick people. But I looked into it further, and and yeah, there are actually records that that say that that happened, and it it just amused me that the crew. We just were like, no, we, we weren't attacked by anything. And then the people who weren't there who normally debunk such things were like, yes, it was definitely this. <laughs> yeah, that it just tickled me. Um, go yeah, on. I remember... Yeah. It, Sorry. Sorry. After you. Um, in the news recently, um, there was a, a story about... I think they found they found the wreck of a of a U-boat mm. that the, and the crew had reported that they'd been attacked by a sea monster. I think it was like off the coast of Ireland or or Scotland somewhere. Yes, when I was actually doing um, research for that one, that one uh, that uh, tale did crop up a few times. So, and I was actually thinking about doing something with that, but then I thought I've got hard evidence for this one, so I'll, I'll go with that. Hmm. Yeah, how did that end? Did that, was it? Did they, did they find the U boat in the end? Yeah, um, I think. Yeah, I think they found it. Mm. Um, I think the main the main story was that they found this U boat, but it just it just so happened that it connected. It was a U boat where when they rescued the crew, the crew the crew said we were attacked by a by a sea monster. Hmm. And like you say, with with um, uh, sort of underwater beasts, I mean, does that's legends that go back for ages, isn't it? I mean, as long as man's been sailing on the ocean, there's been tales of huge sea monsters. But considering how little we know about the depths of the ocean for these things to kind of pop up isn't entirely unexpected i think i mean yeah, who yeah, knows what's, what's right at the bottom of the sea so if you're going to like that terrible jason statham film the meg all right a, a good point yeah, yeah we don't really know much of what's there yeah <laughs> but going back to what you were saying about um the the philip experiment uh, i've got one of my tales which is called um a thought form by the river trent which starts out about by location Okay, which is obviously where a person can um, has been witnessed in two places at the same time, um, and there's quite a few examples of this throughout history. I mean, there was a teacher um, in Marseille, I think, towards the end of the last no, the 19th century. Yeah, she was uh, teaching away in a classroom, and um, all her children were watching her. And then there was a big commotion, as some of them realised that not only was she stood at the blackboard in front of them, she was in the garden outside the window, reading a book out there too. And obviously that that kind of freaked her out. That was um, one of the earlier mentions I could find of um, by location. But it also seems to happen a lot to um, religious figures in the Catholic Church. I'm not really kind of sure, sure why that is. I mean, there was um, St. Anthony of Padua who um, had a habit of being in two places. He could seemingly hold mass in one church and then be singing in a choir another one miles away. And he did this quite often. It was quite a... a almost like a local joke like a great trick the, isn't uh, it if you can do it <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah and yeah but, but apparently he used to say that he felt so guilty about only being able to be in one church at once it might explain why he could almost split himself between the two and that the, even that was a, a member of parliament in 1906 called um sir frederick khan rash and um he was laid up in bed with a, a terrible bout of influenza at the same time that there was an important vote going on that he really really wanted to um cast his vote in and um, a colleague of his, Sir Gilbert, went to the Houses of Parliament and actually saw Khan um, Rash walk in and take a seat next to him. And Sir Gilbert knew he was ill, so he was a little surprised to see him. And uh, they kind of went about their day sort of thing. I don't think he interacted with him. But when he turned to look at him, say, 10 minutes later, Khan Rash was gone completely. And um, when the real Khan Rash found out about this, he was unsurprised because he was, like I say, he was really, really keen to make his vote 
kind of count in this one. But he got annoyed about the whole thing because the, when he did return to, to Parliament, other MPs would, would poke him to make sure he was real in flesh and blood. <laughs> and this obviously wound him up a little bit. So he ended up writing a letter to the local newspaper saying that next time he'll, uh, he'll make sure they'll be sure to die so that this doppelganger sighting won't happen again. Yeah. The typical British reserved humour about something that is <laughs> a little terrifying, to say the least. So but then, uh, sorry, after you. So in, in, um, in your um, thought form uh, by the River Trent, um, just tell, yes. us, tell us a bit about, about that. Well, basically, it's about um, a young girl in the village of, of Gunthorpe, which is um, just down the road from me. And uh, she and her friends, well, her friends start to witness her walking around the village in kind of a, a fugue state, um, not really interacting with people. And they tell the, the real girl this, and she has no idea what they're talking about. And then it kind of escalates from there. Her, her double is, is seen acting strangely um, by her friends and then by herself kind of thing. I, I don't, I won't sort of give away mm. the ending, but it does end in a quite a, not shocking, but um, an unusual fashion. But then I've used that to go on or for Dr. Gotobed to go on to speculate that it could be something called a tulpa. Okay. Which is um, uh, it's like an object or a being that's kind of created by spiritual or, or mental focus. It's like an imaginary best friend. And if you're really, really kind of um, good, if you've got enough will, you can make this imaginary best friend autonomous and a relatively sentient kind of thing. Um, do you know uh, John A. Keel, who wrote the Mothman prophecies? Yes. Yeah, he had a theory about tulpas. Um, obviously, in the Mothman prophecies, he covers all kinds of things like lights in the sky, alien beings, telepathy, um, the Mothman itself. He had a theory that all these paranormal things could be explained by tulpas, by these thought forms that were either manifested by people long ago and then left to run amok kind of thing, or that we were doing it subconsciously ourselves, but obviously not, not knowing it was going on. Like with the Philip experiment, is it something that we're creating with our minds and then because we can't control it it is not running in muck but causing these these weird events to happen that would to me that's a better explanation for lots of paranormal things rather than saying ghosts of the spirit of the dead aliens kind of um are extra sorry ufos are extraterrestrial beings in spacecraft because his almost blanket proposal would cover all of those things does that make sense yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, I know what you mean. I think that, that I, the thing I do find interesting is that idea that that a thought form could be created by 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 someone, and then and then the person that's thought put brought that into creation could could die, and then and then years later someone else could encounter it. I, I'm I'm really interested into how how that process might work, and, and in terms of. Like when uh, in the 19th century or 18th century, when when um, Europeans would move out into the, into the new world, I mean, did they take? Did they bring? I guess they brought their ideas with them, and I mean, can the thought forms of different types of people interact? And I'm just, it's it's, it's fascinating, but I I sometimes find it hard to get my head around how it how it sort of works. It's a, yeah. I, I really like that idea of of, of a tulpa. And also something called like an egregore, which is a rather than a, a thought form created by one person, it's a thought yeah. form created by a group of people. So, I mean, I, that idea is, is really interesting as well. Um, but it's just, you know, the, in terms of understanding the, the mechanics of it, if there are mechanics to 
to understand uh that, yeah. that's still where i'm trying to trying to get my head around it because it's mm. it's a bit of a head it's a real head scratcher yeah yeah i see what you mean because if yeah yeah because if um like you say if um uh when people do say when the americans or the sorry the portuguese landed in america the native americans if they had their own myths and legends which were created by Tolpa and then the Portuguese brought theirs with them, would would they interact? I mean, that yeah. in itself would create some interesting scenarios, to say the least. But yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't actually thought of that. That's a, that's a really good point. Mm. Unless, I suppose, uh, thought forms were capable of change and maybe if it, they were manifested subconsciously by large groups of people and it was kind of like a majority rule took over how that yeah, form I mean, was perceived and acted. Sort of yeah, thing. definitely. I, I think that, that could be... Uh, that could be something to do with it. I, another thing I was thinking is that perhaps, in general, he, humanity is probably up until recently. I, I think civilizations have had a relatively healthy relationship with the supernatural. I, um, they they they're open to the idea mm. of, of 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 gods and spirits and all these entities being around them, and they had a they had a, a framework for how to to interact and how to deal with them. And then it, coming into the you know, late 19th, 20th centuries mm. in the West, especially anyway, uh, it's, it, there was, it was more kind of uh, secular in that, and the, and, and those ideas were kind of relegated to, to just to religion and religion and science are separate. And, um, and I think perhaps the, something was lost in terms of, um, a societal way to interact with these ideas, and so they they maybe just sort of they pop up now wherever they can. Yeah. There's no there's no sort of meeting place anymore. They just kind of they're, they're, it's like um, there's no control mechanism anymore. Yeah. It's like the something's been switched off, and and uh, and mm. these things are just popping up uh, all over the place and without any kind of rhyme or reason because because something's. Because yeah. the mechanism for interacting with them, the framework has has been has been abandoned a, a little bit. Yeah, but that kind of goes back to what I was saying about how um, science or the, the scientific establishment these days just seem to there seems to be a ghosts don't exist, ghosts can't exist. There's no such thing as anything paranormal um, that has to end. Kind of thing. You, you, if you talk about it, trying to research it um, scientifically or even in any kind of way, you, you're just ridiculed by the establishment at all. But if you think back to, um, I think it's up until 1794, it was the general received kind of wisdom that um, rocks that couldn't fall from the sky. There was no such thing as meteors. Fragments mm. of rock and metal do not fall from the sky. But then you have, um, there was a German physicist called um, Erst Kladny. Uh, once again, I may be saying that wrong, but he was, um, he's now considered the founder of, of, sort of meteoric research. But uh, he was uh, also into um, acoustic theory and things like that. But he actually looked into meteors that fell from the sky. And he was the first person to say, actually, this is extraterrestrial in origin. It, it's not from the Earth. It has come from outer space. And initially, he was completely ridiculed. And then slowly, his ideas began to take hold and inspire other people to kind of look into that. And I think what, what we need is someone in the field of psychical research to make just a tiny breakthrough that maybe does set the ball rolling kind of thing and then we start to look at these things with a more kind of a less prejudiced eye which i think a lot of sort of modern science are. 
like, um, I'm obviously have massive respect for the, uh, Brian Cox, the physicist, but it annoyed me a little bit on one show I heard him do where he just dismissed the paranormal out of hand. And I actually kind of thought, oh, really, come on, just throw us a bone here sort of thing. Just, 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 because, just say that there are things that we can't explain because there's always things that we can't explain. And it's very ignorant to, to just assume that there's no such thing as and then no longer look at it further. And like you say, it seems to be that hundreds of thousands of years ago, we seem to understand these things better and have ways to interact with them and, and almost deal with them to a certain extent. But of late, those seem to have either collapsed, been forgotten about, or just swept under the rug and ignored and ridiculed. Mm. And that's that's really sad, I think. Because folklore, a lot of folklore I find is is older people's or even modern people's ways of, of dealing with things that they can't explain, whether they're paranormal in nature or just anything sort of that they can't get their head around. And folklore is a beautiful thing. It really is. It can be it's knowledge passed down through generations. And But for us to just sort of cut that off at, at the head and say, yep, none of that counts anymore. We're looking at everything with a scientific eye. And that, that It makes me a little bit sad, to be honest. But like I say, I'm not a scientist, so I'm not trying to be anti-science or anything like that. I'd just, just be nice if, if things of that nature could be looked at a little differently. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I know what you mean. I seem to a bit of a rant there. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I mean, I think, um, uh, I think that was the whole what Charles Fort was trying to do, wasn't it? He was he he yes, pointed yeah. out that often scientists will argue from a point of belief rather than actually do, being a scientist mm. and and working from a point. They work from a point of of knowing rather than working from a point of not knowing. Yeah. So they work towards something that they already have mm. as a conclusion rather than starting somewhere and working to a, a conclusion without a, a pre a kind of precept of what it what it what it is mm. well it's almost like science um what science accuses faith of they they say that the people who have faith start from a certain point and work backwards to prove their conclusion but yeah charles fort said that about science isn't it? you're doing the exact same thing that you're accusing others of doing yeah yeah and, and he said something like one one measures as a circle beginning anywhere so i think he, he was of the he was of the kind of idea that nothing is ever really one thing it's always in a state of constant state of being between two possible mm. things almost i think is what he was his, his, his general idea was yeah yeah it doesn't really have he had so many ideas and some of his own ideas even he was kind of like yeah this is a bit too much i don't know if you ever <laughs> read the one where he, he postulated the idea about there being a a, a missing sock dimension where all the missing socks go and then the one can maybe reach into that dimension and pull out a sock, but there's a good chance it won't be the one you're after. Um, I hadn't heard that, um, but, but I, I, I love it. I, I, I love it. Mm. I mean, I do, I, I do lose socks, so you never know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause he, he actually wrote that. I don't believe that, but he was saying that that's a good a theory as anyone else can come up with regarding missing socks. <laughs> Not that I can imagine much time has been spent on the theory of missing socks. <laughs> But actually, mentioning Charles Fort, um, one of his books, I couldn't think it's low, and he has a, a massive list of um, apports, the things that just seem to appear from nowhere. And um, he goes on the, this long rant about stuff that falls from the sky. And I got to looking into that, and I used that for the basis of one of my um, entries on sorry, the Good Doctor's thoughts on theories and stuff like that. And um, I found quite a few, a lot of examples as well that he didn't even have in his books. Like in um, in Russia in 1914, a place called Gorsky, uh, it rained silver coins, much to the amusement of the local peasants. And uh, they obviously became somewhat richer from that. But in Kendarrington in 1989, which is in England, there was a couple who were in, in a churchyard just having a picnic. 
and uh, they got rained on with old money that was minted between 1902 and 1953 and it was a clear day so how did that where did that come from and i think in, in australia as well in, in the same year there was an incident where thousands and thousands of, of dead sardines fell from the heavens uh, like a shelter excuse me like a sheet of silver rain is the quote and um it fell about um they were called the deegans this couple it fell about their property um for like a, a area of two acres and then nowhere else it was just centralized to that looks very localized to that and there was no other um nothing else included just these um dead sardines and their cat was quite happy about that <laughs> but yeah <laughs> and it never seemed to happen again but then there's incidents well in in london at some point when it rained um tiny frogs and um these small frogs were all of the same species that were native to brazil um, and yeah that's just strange but looking into um scientific reasons for this the scientific community reckons that this could happen because of um water spouts which is where um, a whirlwind forms above a body of water and then sucks it up basically and then deposits it elsewhere which does explain it but what it doesn't explain is when these things happen why is it only ever a certain species that for i mean it was only ever one species of frog that fell at um at that point in london surely when this water spout or whirlwind picked these frogs up it would have picked up all the other detritus that was in the body of water as well and in that case where yeah. did that go science counters that also I don't, i'm saying science generally but I, I, what i mean is the theories i've read i'm not trying to kind of like just say everything's uh, the same thing but yeah the theory i read that this said that these water spouts act like a centrifuge and so as they're spinning they separate things according to specific gravity and so all these frogs of the same species would weigh a similar amount and so they would be deposited at the same place. But then if that were true, should there not along the path of this, this uh, water spout or whirlwind be the rest of the things that were in it in the winds as well? Should they not be st uh, scattered at separate intervals too? Like there'd be another, say another species of frog that were in the same body of water or the fish or anything like that. It's only ever these weird singular things that appear. And um, that was something I, I've tr not tried to go into an explanation to that because I can't, but that's... Um, uh, like Charles Fort, I, I find it amusing to think that there maybe there's a, a great celestial prankster who's just playing tricks on all of us, <laughs> which actually would explain an awful lot of paranormal stuff. Yeah, I think he had an idea that there might be another, like another world really close to ours, and we're getting yeah like, we're getting their rubbish. Like they they just <laughs> they're just dropping their rubbish on our planet for some reason. I, but I mean, it, yeah, the, that's that's actually where that's he goes on. That's the one he goes on to talk about the missing sock dimension actually in that one. <laughs> Yeah, I can't remember the name of the of the world. He, he gives it a name. I can't. I can't remember for. I've read the book of the damned, but I uh, I can't remember mm. that name. But yeah, it's um, he he uses that that uh, rain, mysterious rains of things to to exemplify his point. Really, is it that that, yeah. that science will come up with a, a with a ridiculous answer for? They will try really hard to come up with an answer for to to rationalize something, but the in in trying to rationalize it, they'll come up with something which is equally as preposterous mm, yeah <laughs> i mean that's that kind of thing's been happening for for ages as well i mean i think there's a book from the 16th century called the history of the northern peoples um by a swedish writer whose name i'm not even going to try to pronounce but in there there's a, a woodcut that depicts a faller of fish over his home village and so it's not like this is a, a modern thing so it's not like we've somehow created this recently sort of thing this has been going on for ages i'm sure it's even cited in the bible at some point that that something rained on someone from the heavens from a clear sky yeah so it's not new no 
So um, in with um with with writing the go to bed diaries, um, how have they uh, in doing that? Have they helped you in terms of your ideas about about the paranormal and 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 kind of condensing it down into what what might be going on and what what kind of constitutes paranormal phenomena? Yes, I'd think so. I mean, one of the things I've, I've tried to do is I've, I've spoken to a lot of people and, and asked them for their experience of the paranormal. And I've had a, a lot of um, actually kind of feedback from that. It does seem to be that if you speak to a, a group of, say, 30 people, you, I can guarantee you'll get one or two that will turn around and say, yes, I've seen a ghost or yes, something weird has happened to me that I can't explain. They will nearly always start with as well. I don't believe in things like that. And then go on to tell you something that, that they don't believe in but they still believe in it enough to tell tell you that it happened to them right yeah which uh does find it um i do find that quite interesting to say the least it's like the um project blue book thing isn't it where they had thousands and thousands of ufo cases and they managed to disprove all of them but they were still left with 17 that they had no idea how that could have been and they were using that to say that there must be something going on because we've still got this tiny percentage of things that we can't explain hmm so like if you if you go on to say reddit or something like that and just type in um true paranormal experiences you, you'll get page after page of of things that people reckon have happened to them and yes i mean this it's the internet so a lot of it's going to be rubbish or people just putting your leg kind of thing but every now and again you'll see something and it's kind of like yeah that actually seems pretty genuine and i know that you can't take that as evidence it's someone else's story on the internet but and that goes back again to what I was saying about the terror of, of mundaneity. The ones that are, are convincing are the ones that are kind of, they're not trying to shock you, not shock value or anything like that. It's something little that's happened, say, in the middle of the day in their living room and it, that it's just freaked them out sort of thing. And that that's what I'm trying to use the, the Go to Bed Diaries for is, is to take things like that and maybe not sensationalize it, but to put my own personal spin on it and make it kind of... Um, what's the word i'm looking for um not more scary but um what's a bit more digestible put it that way right okay yeah and hopefully another thing too is I'd, I'd like to try and make people think about um the paranormal because uh, like i said before a lot of people either have the opinion of there's no such thing as ghosts or or my my grandparents or something when i was little that they can't explain i mean there's one of the entries that um I used uh, was called possible mechanisms of uh, poltergeist activity that actually got picked up by um, an American uh, online newspaper and featured in their scientific section. And I actually had to email oh, nice. them and ask them. Well, actually, email them and ask them to to take it down because I didn't want anyone to come back to me and sort of say, "Oh, this isn't science. This is rubbish." Sort of thing. <laughs> but they were cool. Right. But yeah, that's um, that's a combination of of theories um, from Colin Wilson and. Um, John Keel and pink things like that. It's to do with um, thought experiments about poltergeist activity, and it's mainly sort of. Uh, I'll just try and run you through one now. If you imagine that, if you say if you draw a stick person on a piece of paper, um, let's call him Bob. That's a good enough name. Imagine that Bob's like you and I. He's he's a a real person kind of thing, but with one difference in that that he lives in two dimensions and two dimensions only, so he can't perceive in third dimensions. But apart from that, he's exactly the same as us. So if we take a finger and hover that over bob he can't perceive that in any way because he can't sort of perceive height he can't comprehend it but if you put your finger next to him then he sees a flesh-colored line appear are you following me yes yeah and if we draw um uh, an unbroken line next to him that's that's he can't get over that 
kind of thing. He, 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 there's no way for him to sort of step out of the paper and step over it. So if we were to draw a box around him, he'd be trapped. So yeah, that's that, that, how that perception kind of works. But then if we um, scrub out a piece of a line, then we make a little door for him. So he's probably much more amused now and happy to go about his uh, two-dimensional business. But <laughs> and if, from that point, using Bob as our two-dimensional individual, we can kind of start to screw around with him. So if, if we sort of place a coin just outside the door, then Bob can see it. Then he's probably quite happy about that. If, if we lift it up, as far as he can tell, that coin has disappeared. And then if you put that behind him, it's reappeared again. So it's basically essentially to him, it, it was there one minute and then it's gone. And then suddenly it's, it's reappeared behind him. So if we take that idea and then extrapolate Bob out into three dimensions, is it not possible to imagine a further fourth dimension that's above us where there are other beings like we were to Bob that are kind of doing these things just to play around and toy with us? So that's always an interesting thought that or the, the, when I first started writing that one, I actually had to sit and think for a good couple of hours about it because it set my mind racing off in all kinds of directions. No, I, I think it's, I think it's really interesting. I, I think you're right. Cause if you look back um, to uh, ancient civilizations, the, the gods in those were often messing around with mortals. They mm. would, they, you know, they, they turn themselves into, into a creature or they you know they they enjoyed they enjoyed tormenting humanity and and there's mm. a, and pretty much every every culture that there's been has there some kind of trickster deity some kind of trickster yeah. entity that that usually that likes to mess around with you usually often trickster entities will kind of help you out they'll they'll mess around with you to kind of let make you help you realize something or or, or yeah. to challenge you in some way, but yeah, I mean, I I think that's a that's a that's a really good idea. I, I mean, I the the more the more I um, read about the paranormal and the 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 thing that strikes me is that that the ultimate question is, well, what is reality? Like reality, I, I don't think reality is fixed. I, I I think it's I think a lot of the time a lot of energy goes into into kind of trying to understand whether something is is real so is bigfoot real mm. are ghosts real yeah. um uh, what are ufos or are they physical but ultimately maybe the, there's a more fundamental question as to what what do you mean real <laughs> um, yeah yeah exactly yeah. and it, it can reality not be more fluid than just a, a binary thing of real or unreal can, then can there not be various degrees of of um, reality sort of that, that yeah exists. like a spectrum of a spectrum of, of reality yeah. i think um and also I, I was i think this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before where where um western civilization has sort of been conditioned into this idea of of what the of a of a kind of a material world and and it just being a material world when um i i mm. I, I honestly i don't think that's the case i mean i think it is an aspect of a much broader weirder kind of reality and something like psychology i, I when when you would talk to most people about psychology I, I i think that they would they would understand it as trying to as trying to understand the the human mind but but again it it's it's a lot more it's a lot deeper than that i i think mm. and and the mind the mind kind of being sort of confined to to the brain 
but I, I'm I'm not sure that's that's the case either. And if you if you look at something like the the writings of of Carl Jung, I mean, that, I mean Carl Jung is 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 an occult occult kind of author, isn't he? I mean, he's a, he's yes, he's, yeah. he's known as one of the founders of psychoanalysis, but but he essentially was an occultist, and he was very mm. interested in that, that aspect of of the mind. And if you take that into consideration, then I think that kind of thing that that helps to kind of explain the the paranormal. Yeah, I mean, there was um, uh, uh, Doctor Mesmer who invented mesmerism. He was um, uh, a psychologist as well, and there was a bit of big um, sort of hoo ha, wasn't there, between him and the chap who invented hypnotism? And it's only uh, because of um, certain events panned out that hypnotism became a thing, and mesmerism didn't. But he was he was a, a bit also a, a, an early adopter of um, paranormal things. So that he wouldn't, he too was a respected scientist and until he wasn't basically, but yeah. And, and so, yeah, it's interesting how these um, doctors of the mind only a few years ago were allowed to, to start with um, occult leanings kind of thing. Whereas now, if you, if you tried to that, like, hi, I'm your psychologist. Oh, by the way, I also uh, believe in many paranormal things. I think you'd probably be chased out of town. Yeah. To be honest, which is sad. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Um, Going back to it's like um, another thought experiment, this saying about um, tricks to gods. To actually, just as an aside, as you were saying that about um, how tricks to gods are kind of do tend to be helpful, there was one gentleman I spoke to who told me that when he moved into a, a new house about twelve years ago, he was actually kind of plagued with um, a series of well, not plagued, but bothered by a series of um, sort of poltergeist-like activity where he would put things down and they would disappear. And he, he always said there was nothing exact he could put his finger on. Like he didn't ever sort of like put something down, make a mental note that he'd put it there, then come back and it had gone. But things would always go missing and stuff that would turn up in odd places. And he could never be sure that it wasn't him sort of losing his mind. But then one day he was um, had to leave the house in a hurry and he was looking for his house keys. And uh, he went to the, the door under the a cupboard under the stairs where there was um uh, hooks for all his keys and his house keys weren't there basically and uh he kind of lost his rag a little bit and, and just said out loud oh come on now this is getting ridiculous i really need my keys can you not just stop doing this and um he turned around and uh, his keys were in the door when they weren't there previously and uh it, it, that goes back to i think to the the trickster nature of, of poltergeist phenomenon not trying to be um evil or cause harm but just trying to be a little annoying like a like a kid basically prodding you until you sort of snap and he said actually after that point that he never really experienced anything again everything was a lot quieter yeah yeah i think a lot yeah and he was a a kind of um i actually spoke to him in person he was a a friend of my of my father's and uh he was not the kind of person who was prone to flights of fancy he was really down to earth and uh, he actually did say to me i don't believe in ghosts but and yeah, and there was, as soon as he said that, I knew that there was going to be an interesting sort of a tale come out of that. But yeah, I'm, I'm even going back to to the thought experiment thing. Uh, one of the the other example I use is um, if you imagine uh, a line of ants um, by the side of the road, just minding their own business, they're not really concerned by the people walking next to them or the cars going past. It's, you know, it doesn't affect their lives, so they just carry on. But if one day a small child bends down and gives the ants a shove with a stick suddenly their world is being invaded by something that's that's causing mischief kind of thing and then that stick disappears i'm not saying that people are like ants obviously we're we're kind of different our motivations and our life our, our very beings are completely different to ants but what if there was something 
so far above us that we are above insects that occasionally deem fit to poke around with our world sort of thing. I mean, that that's surely that's not completely out of the realms of fantasy, or maybe it is. No, no, I I, th- I, th- I think uh, that's a, a, a an interesting idea. I I, I don't see any reason to kind of discount it. I mean, it's. It, it's it's arrogant, isn't it, to to assume yes to assume that that our our level of of existence is the highest one. There's not some other level of, and that seems to be the place we're at now. I find is that it's almost like not human development has stopped, but we seem to have, have be going down one path and not others. We seem to be ignoring these other ones because we're almost we're above that now. We're sufficiently advanced to be above that when there might be more and more satisfying answers to some of life's questions down these other paths rather than the one we've chosen to go. Yeah, I mean, the the, the thing that gives me optimism is that whenever there are kind of um, polls taken about belief in these things, it's it's usually the, a majority mm. of people are open-minded to it. So I think there's there's always the yes. there's always the interest there. It's just it's not it's not given a lot of time I'm uh, um, in the you know in in the in 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 the mainstream media it, it's if if there's a story about a ghost it'll be it'll be sort of kind of done for for a bit of fun or or um yeah, or, or there'll be yeah. a bit of there'll be a little bit of um mickey taking if it gets onto the news like i remember i remember i caught a bit of a breakfast news and they were talking about um a muamua that that object that kind of passed through our solar system and the idea that yes. it might be a it might be something from another civilization it might be it might be an alien object and and technically it is an alien object but but um mm-hmm. but um the it was treated a bit like um uh, like the, the news was slightly um taking the mick a little bit about the the concept that it might be some kind of alien craft and the, yeah it's really frustrating because it's it shouldn't be take you shouldn't take the mickey really because mm-hmm. it's it's so interesting, and and I think a lot of people. Um, yeah. It, and to be fair, this was one of the times when I I think the there were plenty of people in the in what you might call them the mainstream science community that were going, yeah, this is this is something we haven't seen before. It's it's pretty rare, and we don't know we don't know why it's it slowed down when it went through our solar system and then sped up again. And, yeah. Yeah, their concept ideas was it. Their consensus seemed to be that um, all options are on the table still, but like you say, the mainstream media were, were reporting it as oh, it, you say little green men. I think was the expression that they used. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But also, like it's it's with the paranormal thing. It's the um, where, where you've got your little green men when people talk about um, anything extraterrestrial. With the paranormal thing, you get the the figure in the bed sheets clanking the chains or something like that, and that does a that's part of the the mockery that kind of comes with it, and also with with modern kind of ghost stories that get reported by the media it's always in a, a tabloid like you say with with a mocking tone it'll always appear in like the star or the sun or something like that but I mean, even going back to the enfield poltergeist um that was 1977 and that was that was reported seriously by the daily mirror as in it, it, as if it was an actual sort of newsworthy piece and but for a few months until it was no longer yeah. news and it's a shame that we've kind of got to that point Really, to be honest, I think it, it it would be interesting if one such establishment decided to champion looking into these things from a different perspective, but or even just without the, the condescending tone. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, going back to the Enfield Poltergeist, I mean, I think one thing 
about that that I found interesting was um, that the family in that house, they were—they they felt like they were quite emotionally vulnerable people. They, they'd been through a lot, hadn't they? And I think... Um, yes. Uh, and uh, Janet Janet formed a quite a bit of a uh, the Morris Morris Gross was um, he was he investigated alongside Guy Lionel Playfair and yes I, I think he, he formed a bit of a, a bond with her didn't he because he he'd lost his daughter yeah. not long before this yeah uh, he was case. also called Janet he was also called Janet and I and I found that I found that really interesting I and I, I'm I'm intrigued as to whether somebody that's been through some kind of psychological trauma and and, and is emotionally vulnerable like that do you, do you think that can make a person more susceptible mm. to the paranormal um yes i would would say definitely i mean that kind of leads into um do you know of sort of stone tape theory yes um uh place memory like residual hauntings that's the theory that certain buildings normally old ones can um retain the memories of, of certain normally traumatic events that or emotionally sort of um uh emotionally heightened events that occur within within their walls and that these events can then be replayed back by someone during uh sort of similar times so if say um just to as an example say a murder occurred in 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 an old stone building then if someone was, was walking through who was um what's what i'm looking for um open to receiving these things who had experienced a, an emotional range that kind of made them be able to um, tune in to these these replays kind of thing, and that person would would see it and that it would replay out in front of them kind of thing. And I think that that, going back to what you were saying, it does always seem to be people who've experienced sort of um, trauma or emotions themselves who are more open to, to anything paranormal. I mean, that was just an example. But yeah, with um, the uh, Harper family in the Enfield, story they would they'd been through some some terrible things and it did seem that because of, of that heightened emotional state within that house that these things began to manifest themselves and when when maurice gross appears on the scene i suspect he probably allowed whatever was was taking place to ramp up to another level which is probably what went on for so long i mean it was a year and a half or something like that and most poltergeist um, experiences that i've read about tend to just dissipate after a few months so yeah i definitely do think there's something in that I definitely think that emotional state is is a big big deal. But then, going back to um, the scientific thing, I mean, how does one measure emotional states? I mean, you, you can obviously see activity in the brain inside an, an MRI scanner, but a, a site where poltergeist activity is occurring, you can't just suddenly install an MRI scanner and fit all the witnesses into it and see what's going on whilst the activity is taking place. It's not that's not how these things work, unfortunately. So that's why any kind of sort of research into the paranormal and doesn't seem to be um, compatible with the scientific method, which involves controlling variables, which can't be controlled in these situations. I mean, you can't control someone's emotions. Well, you, you can try, but you probably fail miserably. Does yeah. I, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I think, and, and that's kind of, I guess in a way that's, it's a little frustrating because it seems like, I, I think there's, um, uh, the a little unfairly the onus the onus is on uh, people to prove to prove the paranormal when it might not be it might not be entirely possible it's uh, that's the 
that's the kind of catch twenty two situation. The the, the, yeah, the debunkers, yeah. the debunkers, kind of take the they have it. They have it easier because they they just have to. All they have to yes. do is prove that it doesn't. And it's easier to prove that something doesn't exist than than it does a lot of the time. Well, once again, with with the the Enfield poltergeist, a lot of the people debunking that I found seem to isolate one thing that they could explain away, and then say, "Oh, I've ex- debunked that. Therefore, the rest of it." is completely out of the window the girls involved in that case i believe confessed that they were doing some of the movement, throwing objects about and doing some of the tricks but not all of it no and so I, I think yeah if you i mean if you'd formed a bond with with the investigators like janet did then you'd want to keep them around wouldn't you so yes it makes it makes sense in that in that respect mm. yeah so like as you were saying i mean it, it does seem to be easier to to debunk something that it is to to jump on but not jump on board with it but kind of look into it further from a, from another point of view like charles thought again once again you've got your your already formed opinion and you're working back from it and your opinion is like this this can't be happening therefore here's reasons why it can't be happening and then you, you get all kinds of things going on <laughs> yeah one thing that i have been reading about was um uh, infrasound I don't know if you know infrasound. It's when um, a really low frequency sound wave is created and it's inaudible to the human ear, but um, it has a strange effect on the human brain. I mean, it can create feelings of of tension and um, dread. And it also creates the feeling that you're being watched and it's uh, responsible for causing um, things to appear out of corners of, in in the corner of your eye. It's created by uh, all kinds of stuff. It can be created by underground water or faulty machinery. But there was a, a report I read by a chap called um, Vic Tandy, who was quite in the speaker industry. Oh, maybe it was the Tannoy, I'm not really sure. But yeah, his report was called The Ghost in the Machine. And uh, he published that in 98 for the Society of Psychical Research. And he was actually working away in a lab. And um, he got this feeling that he was being watched. All the hairs on his arms were standing up, that kind of thing. And he actually began to see a grey blob out the corner of his eye. And this, this really freaked him out. He didn't really know what was going on. But he carried on doing his work. And the next night, um, similar things started to happen. And he had something on um, his workbench that began to vibrate quite violently. And this sort of really began to freak him out. But being uh, of a certain disposition, he didn't get scared. He decided to kind of look into what was going on. And he eventually worked out that um, a new fan had been installed in the air conditioning, but it wasn't quite sitting correctly. Right. So it was creating a standing wave in the middle of this lab of this infrasound that was causing all this strange stuff to happen to him. And it, it was uh, at such a frequency that the thing on his desk that was vibrating was actually resonating in this standing wave. Yeah, and I, I think that that's, I mean, that could possibly be useful in explaining certain um, paranormal activity, but it doesn't explain everything. Do you know what I mean? So I've seen infrasound be used as excuses for, that's even actually mentioned, I think, in the Enfield uh, case was that, um, maybe it was something to do with infrasound. Maybe everyone was seeing things, but that doesn't explain all of the phenomena. That doesn't explain like um, fires being inexplicably lit or something like that. And that's what I mean about people disproving one thing and then using that to sweep the entire case under the carpet. But yeah, yeah, I do, yeah. if you do want an interesting read, I do recommend looking into infrasound. It's, it's a very, very strange phenomenon. It's caused all kinds of weird effects. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I agree. I think that 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 study, that that case... It just it just gives you some more inf- information into into that phenomenon rather than disproving it. I think. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I would also agree with that. 
Cool. So, um, so uh, are there any other um, theories that you've you've kind of um, you've developed as you've done the blog that you you, you want to talk about? Um, not as the moment. I mean, I've got a few things that I'm kind of working on. I've only been doing the blog for for six months, and um, so I've, I've still got a, a few ideas that I'm kind of formulating for stuff for the, this new year. Um, I am. There are a few things I'm looking at, but at the moment I'm kind of reaching my feelers out again just to see if anyone wants to get in touch with them, any kind of uh, experiences or ideas that they've had. So I'd be certainly be keen to speak to people about that. Yeah, and yeah, I'm also kind of. Um, yeah, sorry, go on. No, 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 you, you go ahead, sorry. <laughs> no, I was going to say, but I'm also trying to look more into um, uh, the folkloric aspect of things, like um, how things in the past have kind of um, changed over time, if you know what I mean, like how things that we used to uh, uh, believe were werewolves and things like that, how the perception of them has changed through time and then um, vampirism and things like that. I'm not going to go too deep into it, but so um, uh, they were saying, I read somewhere something to do with um, lycanthropy and how that could be linked to rabies and uh, how they, how um, rabies could be the cause of, of werewolf myths from years ago, along with other, because I think there's actually a medical condition that's linked to lycanthropy that can cause people to get, get hairier, basically, and uh, look quite vicious. So yeah, that's yeah. one of the the, the other things I'm going to be spending a bit more time on in the future. Well, yeah, one of the things about werewolves that um, I find interesting is that um, I, I'd be interested to see how, in in terms of the werewolves, how many are where a, a person transforms completely into a into a wolf, and mm. or are there ones where you transform into a, like a like a dog sort of wolf man? Yeah, um, and um and where where those sort of um myths exist around the world because one thing that I, I i do find interesting is that in quite a lot of um shamanic um ritual and and and, and ritual yeah in rituals um the, the, sh- the shaman will kind of go through a transformative um like a, yeah, it will go for a metamorphosis into a yes into another being, and I sometimes I think it, maybe that's where that's coming from. the The idea of a person transforming it maybe comes from it, it comes from a, a tradition where where somebody in the in the community would contact the other world and and be transformed, and mm. it's kind of and it's kind of morphed into the into the werewolf legend that we have. And also yeah. alongside things of, of, you know, trying to explain the unknown and it, yeah. it, it's, it's very hard to kind of, you know, trace, trace back something like the werewolf idea to, to a single point where you can kind of start from. Mm. And, um, and another thing it reminded me of is, um, have you heard of, uh, Wendigo psychosis? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was something else I've been looking into. That, that's really interesting. That is too. There's so much going on there. Yeah, because I mean, basically, um, it, I think it comes. Well, the Wendigo is a creature in Native uh, First Nations legend, and mm. and I think it comes from people kind of going off into the forest and so maybe getting lost and then resorting to resorting to cannibalism, basically, yes, to survive. Yeah. And 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 unfor- and unfortunately, if you eat if you eat too much, if you're a human and you eat too much human meat, you 
you go sort of insane and you start to crave it and you mm. and it's not very nutritious so you come you kind of sort of become gaunt and and yeah. horrific and <laughs> and 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 I think well maybe maybe it's something like that maybe it's maybe it's people that have gone off and disappeared and come and then come back or been found yeah and and they look completely different to how they were and it's like a I, I, I don't know where the, the hairiness would come from hmm. but then imagine but then if you they, were feral and grew up in the woods and all you'd ever tasted one <clears> was, was was raw meat kind of thing if you were to appear to a bunch of villagers in the I don't know the 16th century on your hands and knees covered in dirt with sort of uh blood smeared around your mouth you would look like an animal wouldn't you and they would probably yes. go back and say oh, we've seen this this hairy monster do you know what I mean it wouldn't be what they'd seen but it would over time that's probably what the perception would would, would come and I think what you were saying about the Wendigo I mean that that sounds very similar to maybe how werewolf origins began and they've just got twisted over time but what I have noticed is that modern day fiction as well you can see where certain things books have been published and then that changes the the nature of that myth like with um but the vampire myth when dracula appeared that that suddenly took a very different turn and then everything afterwards was was based backwards on that or or aspects of that and i think i can't pinpoint the specific a specific where werewolf one but then that that legend did seem to definitely take a change in the early 20th century with the publication of of one kind of work and then everything that that was in that book seems to be used as the basis for all lycanthropy going forward. And is that not modern day sort of folklore <laughs> and action things being, because, because folklore is, is malleable. It does, it does change to, to fit the circumstances kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think that one thing that um, I've, I, we, we both get involved in um, folklore Thursday yeah. on, on Twitter, don't we? And yes, one of the things I've, I've kind of learned from that is that, well, firstly, there's a, a still a vast resource of folklore. Mm. Lots and lots of people are interested in it, and and I think it's it, it is it's more every day than you might imagine. I, I think yes. most people probably have a little bit of tradition and a superstition. I think I think most people have a, a you know at least a little bit of superstition to them. There'll they'll, there'll be things that they won't do because they 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 they, they know it's it's like bad luck or yeah or you know or they'll or they'll say something to themselves or whenever they you know they encounter something else so i again i i think it's i think it's health there's still a healthy interest in these things and i yeah but for, for the for the for the you know for for all the the ills that get laid at the door of of social media i think it it can help preserve mm. things like this and 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 maintain their popularity and get them out and, and get them out to people that might not otherwise be aware of them yeah, and also just um, like you say, everyday things being explained, like, like um, why you bless someone when they sneeze. That that's always fascinated me when I was a child when someone explained to me about why why you say bless you when you sneeze because it, it that's just the done thing now. I didn't even wouldn't even think about it, but that that, that goes back through folklore. It's it's something that my nan used to have um, loads of um, horseshoes in her living room and didn't have had a horse or anything like that and she explained to us that they were always on the wall and up a certain way to hold in the luck and that that fascinates yeah. me i have five horseshoes now in my apartment just because i want to hold in the luck kind of thing yeah and that that's that's why i love folklore because it like you say it does still affect everyday life even if people don't realize it and it, it's it's just so interesting how things were ex explained in in olden times i would say simpler times but maybe they were more complicated
but yeah and yeah and like you say it, it does still affect daily life and people i don't think realize it i don't think people generally most people appreciate it although like you say having participated in folklore thursday is amazing and heartening to see how much interest there is out there and actually to be honest with anything paranormal i've met quite a lot of people um through social media including yourself who it's nice to discuss these things with and have a, a different point of view because there's not many people in my immediate circle who are willing to have this kind of discussion about that sort of thing and it's it's nice to to get involved and realize that there are still people out there who want to to talk about these things yeah definitely cool well chris this has been a, a really great chat thank you thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you for having me on that it's been yeah been really good so if people want to find out more how um, uh, just tell them the like the where to find the go to bed diaries and 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 find and find yourself okay my, the blog's at um just at the go to bed diaries.com and there's a contact me page on there and i'm more than willing to talk, speak to anyone uh, about anything paranormal or if you've got experiences or anything that you'd like to share with me i'm always always interested in hearing about that and on twitter i'm on uh, go to bed underscore diaries on that so yeah, you can find me there and i also have a page on facebook too the go to bed diaries and like i said I, I, it'd be really interesting to hear if, if anyone has any uh, paranormal experiences they'd like to to share with me excellent well I'll, I'll put a link to to the website and the blog on the uh, on the show notes brilliant cool well there thank you very much no thank you very much cheers then cool cheers i think this episode is a good follow-up to episode five with icy sedgwick there we talked about the depiction of ghosts in literature and how that compares with our understanding of the phenomenon in real life two distinct separate mediums with Chris, he's created the files of Dr. Gotobed to explore and communicate his own interest in the supernatural, taking inspiration from real-life incidents. Does it matter that the cases are mostly fictional? Not at all. Everyone loves a good story, and it's the subject matter here that hooks you in, especially with something like what happened to the USS Stein. There'll be more details of the blog in the show notes. I highly recommend taking a look. If you like this episode, please leave a comment, a rating, or a review. It'd be really helpful. Until next time, thank you very much for listening.